Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network. I just want to let you know that our sponsor, Harry Tarantula, is looking for people who do comics in Canada for signings, events, and Q&As. So if you do a comic, they want to hear from you. They're located at 6979 Young Street, and you can give them a call at 647-430-1263. We're looking for people like our past guests, Ramon Perez, Marcus Toe, Kelman Andrasovsky, Ricky Lima, Megan Carter, Hope Nicholson. If you do a comic, they want you. Email them at us at harryt.com or call them again at 647-430-1263 and ask for Leon or Jeremy and tell them Aaron sent you. You're listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. Here's your host, Aaron Broverman. Godspeed, old chum. Hey, fanboys and fangirls. Welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble on the Never Sleeps Network at NeverSleepsNetwork.com. I am your host, Aaron Broverman. Uh, You'll find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast needs met. Or you can go directly to our website and uh, get the whole library at NeverSleepsNetwork.com. With me today is Rebecca DM. Rebecca is part of the committee that puts on Comic Shop Ladies' Night. You might have seen the ads around. They've had them at Page and Panel. They've had them at The Sidekick. They've had them at Paradise Comics. And on uh, Sunday, April 23rd, uh, they had them at uh, Silver Snail, uh, which is, you know, Toronto's premier comic shop destination. She also, though, is a very talented creator herself. Uh, she is the author of a series of steampunk novels called The Tales of Captain Duke. And um, she's also going to be appearing in a zine uh, published by uh, fake geek girls like us called Icons and Idols. It's got a lot of poetry, a lot of artwork and uh, some personal essays all about sort of the icons of of geekery and that sort of thing. So welcome, Rebecca. Hi, thanks for having me. It's nice to have you because, you know, The Tales of Captain Duke, it's a a steampunk novel series, and we've never had anyone talk about um, steampunk because this is mostly a comic book show. So we talk about comics, but we never really get to explore other facets of fandom. So this is quite a privilege for me. So thank you. Thanks for coming in. (laughs) Thank you. But before we get into your work, and we're going to talk obviously extensively about Comic Shop Ladies Night, uh, I want to get to know you a little bit in terms of your early life. Uh, Where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in a tiny little town called Chatsworth. It's up in southwestern Ontario near Owen Sound. That's awesome. So how did comics first come into your life? I would have to say it was the the funny pages, clipping out the comics with my grandma on Saturdays and going over to her house. Like all my life, she would send me like all of the, the comics in the newspapers. 
and then from there, it got into Archie Comics and the grocery stores. We didn't really have comic shops where I was, so yeah. it was uh, very much like grocery store checkouts and the newspapers. Yeah, I think I got into comics like really, really young. I started to see them more in the grocery stores first before before I knew that there were that there were comic shops. Yeah, I think at first I thought that Archie Comics was actually Saved by the Bell. <laughs> oh yeah, like you thought that they were like adapting Archie on television, or yeah, one hundred percent. And so I was like, oh well, I like this show, and my cousins like this show, so you know, I should probably get the book form because I really like books. No idea what I was reading, but because it had the pictures, I would kind of make up the stories as I went along. How old were you? Oh, probably like three. <laughs> yeah. And your grandma, did she have like a really good sense of humor? Is that why she kept sending you the the strips and stuff from the newspaper? Oh, yeah. Well, she's uh, she was a funny character. Um, you know, that was kind of her, like, her sign off, like, see you in the funny pages. Oh, yeah. Yeah, grandma. She enjoyed little stories. She really enjoyed Family Circus. She identified a lot with the the stories of it, I think. Mm -hmm. And she was a a really big reader. So anything to kind of encourage that early interest, I think. Oh, cool. So I guess the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Not that far. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, that's awesome. So then you get into Archie and, and it's interesting. It's kind of a full circle moment because, you know, you thought it was Saved by the Bell and now... There is an Archie show called Riverdale, which is like which the I love <laughs> twin, twin Peaks version of Saved by the Bell in a way because they're all super attractive and and amazing. I I watch Riverdale too. It's it's one of my not so guilty pleasures. What do you what do you like about the show? What I like about the show is that it's very much an ensemble piece. This show is not about Archie, and in many cases, as has been identified in. So many pieces by writers, even better than I. Like, Archie is, like, the least interesting character of this show. Like, everyone else is dealing with, like, murders and, you know, pregnancies and, you know, family troubles. And Archie is like, hmm, football or music? <laughs> I, I, I know. it's They're almost, like, lampooning the whole, like, G-Golly Willikers tone of, yeah. of Archie and his... Struggles because I mean the thing that makes Archie the character that everybody loves is that uh, he is the only one that doesn't seem to get his Betty and Veronica dilemma and why balancing the two of them might not be that good good an idea. Like he always comes across as like so so innocent when like in reality you would totally realize like that what he's doing is oh yeah he's such a soft (laughs) (laughs) totally totally it's crazy and so it's it's hilarious that like they still sort of have positioned him that way in this in this universe. Yeah, like that's what makes me that's the only thing that makes me so mad about the show. Like I love that show. It is such a it is just a genuine pleasure for me. Right. Um but like the fact that they've given such depth and emotional complexity to the relationship between Betty and Jughead, like the like I ship Bughead. I'm so mad at them because every time you know, they have this really sweet moment and Archie is in the room. It like cuts to his reaction. And I'm like, don't you dare take this away from me. Like, (laughs) you're making me love this. You're making me imagine this when I had never pictured the two of them together and make it believable. And you're you're totally going to take this away from me. Yeah, I mean, all the like fan fiction writers must be going crazy because this is like, it's like a dream come true for them. I mean, yeah. for those who haven't seen the show, like just to get, an idea that this isn't your parents' Archie show. I mean, 
Jughead's dad is part of a biker gang. Like that's kind yeah. of that's kind of what that's kind of where it ends. And that's sort of how I summarize where they've taken this show is basically is basically that. And then people are like, whoa. Like <laughs> so yeah. It's crazy. So you're reading Archie comics and stuff. did you get into anything else besides like the double digest and those sorts of things afterwards or how did your fandom for for comics progress so i think that the next time it really picked up was when i was in university and a friend of mine handed me american gods by neil gaiman it was just like you need to read this And he told me it was going to be one of my favorite books, and he was correct. So I started looking into everything else that Neil Gaiman had done, and I discovered the Sandman series. But, you know, I didn't have a lot of money. It was university, so I didn't really pick it up until later when I could get, like, you know, my beautiful box set and read, like, all of them, marathon them in one weekend. It was glorious time. When but, did you go to university around? Just so I can get an idea of like how fu- how soon after American Gods came out did you did you read it, you think? Oh, okay. This would have been like 2006, okay. 2007. So a few years later because yeah. I think American Gods came out like 2001-ish. Oh yeah. yeah. No, I was uh, I was late to the Neil Gaiman okay. game, but I I'm very grateful to my friend for for showing that to me because if he hadn't, like, I don't know how I would have stumbled upon Sandman organically. Right. I was really into that movie Stardust, and so that I discovered that he had also written that. And, right. you know, there's some steampunk elements in there as well. Yeah, there is definitely some steampunk elements in Stardust. Um, I think I am a huge Neil Gaiman fan. Mm-hmm. My, uh, I mean, Neil Gaiman is on my shirt right now that I'm wearing. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a it's a it's a good omens shirt yeah. and he's holding the nice the and accurate prophecies store. of angus nutter and and the flaming sword mm-hmm. um i think it was part of a fundraiser for alzheimer's after terry pratchett passed away oh. from the disease but anyway that's not neither here nor there but yeah my people who listen to this podcast will know that uh, i bring up neil gaiman uh often and uh, and I think I was first exposed to him through uh, a friend of mine who was really into him. And he gave me all the Sandman books to read yeah. at once. Just as I was sort of getting into him, like late high school, uh, American Gods was coming out and he was starting the blog. So I transitioned from Sandman to, oh, I have to read his first adult novel and stuff like that. So, I mean, for you, though, what what does Neil Gaiman's writing and Sandman do for you in terms of how does it speak to you? So I think that it was the way that he imagines these worlds with such depth, you know, whether it's like looking into uh, the crack of a sidewalk or a puddle at the end of the lane, like, or, you know, just the dream world in itself, like he's Mm -hmm. able to craft these incredibly complex stories from these kind of everyday occurrences and, you know, add magic to everyday life. And that was something that I really, really enjoyed and like respected as a creator. Mm -hmm. And whether you're reading like Sandman or American Gods, like it's just, it's such a compelling story, the way that he blends what these common everyday objects that we interact with, with you know, this other fantastical realm that's existing all around us. It's like, 
you know, quantum Neil Gaiman, like, are you walking down the sidewalk or are you about to end up in Neverwhere? Yeah, Neverwhere was a really good illustration of of that. Like, you're, you know, sort of the magic of everyday life. I mean, I think, too, it's not just melding everyday life with fantastical elements. I think it's also melding, like, actual mythology and mm-hmm. history and things like that with li- and literature with, like, fantastical elements. Because both American Gods and Sandman play with like Shakespeare and I mean American Gods has that whole like mythology of like the gods that people actually believed in and yeah. like, Norse gods and African gods yeah and, stuff and like I that. loved that I love yeah. I'm so excited for that show too because I loved the way that he you know incorporated that mythology as like you know with like the, the idea that media and technology are these new gods and whatnot and right. how the way that we interact with these myths gives them power i'm really looking forward to the show too because i think that idea of like a war between the old gods and what we believe in and the new gods of now is sort of what we're going through on facebook and and how people interact and argue with each other so i think they could take it a lot of places that are like super contemporary to the times that we're living in yeah Yeah, absolutely. That's amazing. So that's cool. And you mentioned that Stardust, which I think I, did I, like, going through the Neil Gaiman catalog, I think I didn't really arrive at Stardust, the book, until the movie came out. I was just sort of checking it off my list, and I wasn't fast fast enough before the movie came out. (laughs) But you mentioned that that there are the steampunk elements of, uh, of Stardust. Is that how you got into steampunk? in the first place? You know, I don't really remember the first time that I kind of got into steampunk, so to speak. I think it was more that I always really appreciated those very visual elements of like, you know, like Howl's Moving Castle and stuff like that, or even Wild Wild West when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. And with Stardust, like the movie version, not the book version, with Captain Shakespeare, um, and the the lightning ship flying through the clouds and capturing lightning and this merry crew that was going through and fighting together, but you know had some had some morals, you know, right? A band of merry thieves. That's awesome. It really captured my imagination, and between that and Firefly, and um, you know uh, this fascination with alternate history, like I was reading a lot of Naomi Novik, like that Temeraire series with oh, the. Okay. Yeah, it was like, it's like, Temeraire is like Napoleonic Wars fought with dragons. Oh. Yeah. So, so it's like as if Napoleon existed in like medieval times? No, it's like as if the Napoleonic Wars were fought with literal dragons. Oh, like people had them as people like had them. actual weapons yeah. or tanks. Or like Basically tanks, yeah, like yeah. they rode them around. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, and so like it really opened my mind to the this idea of like, playing around with history and tweaking it and kind of taking the timeline and altering it just enough and seeing what the ramifications were. Where do you think that fascination comes from? Like playing around with history? Is is there like a deep thing in the way that you grew up that has you sort of fascinated with the idea of like changing timelines and like not living in the time that we're living and sort of tweaking it? Yeah, I mean, like, I think that every kid grows up and if you're enough of a bookworm, you're just like, why am I not living in the time of having all these adventures? And then you get a little older and you're like, oh, wait, I really like voting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But for me, like, 
growing up where I did, like I'm like eight generations Southern Ontario. Like my family came over in the 1800s. Wow. So you're surrounded by that sense of history. Like one time I was visiting uh, a friend's and his grandmother popped by and she was just like, oh, who's your family? So, you know, I tell her and she says like, oh, I got music lessons from your great, great grandmother. Wow. And like, so you're always surrounded by that sense of like, you have come from a place and these are who your people were. And these are like the little fra- fragments of stories that have been passed down from that time. Are, were, there, were there like photos of your family going back generations? Oh, like yeah. Hanging around your house and stuff? Um, around my grandmother's house, which is like at the center of the tiny village that I grew up in. Wow. Yeah. That's cool to be like one of the founding families of, of, <laughs> the, of the place that you're living in. That's awesome because everyone else has to scramble on like ancestry.com to figure out their yeah, family Yeah, for history. us, it's like, you know, after past our grandparents, 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 that's when we kind of lose the thread. But on some sides, like, you know, my other, my grandmother on the other side, my father's side, has all of these family trees and these books of genealogy. And so, you know, we always kind of had a sense of like where we came from. Like we're all like super Irish, Scottish roots, all of that kind of stuff. Wow, that's awesome. But then, you know, eight generations Canadian, so. Yeah, but it's like you have like your own legendary tale sort of sort of fleshed out. It's it's like you're living in the storybooks that you're reading, kind of. Yeah, I actually, um, I made my grandmother's grandfather who was like one of the first sea captains to sail the great lakes on the barges there there's like a picture of him uh in a paper from like the early 1900s with like a top hat that he won for being like the first ship into the owen sound harbor after the spring thaw wow what's his name uh captain frank j waugh wow cool i'll have to look that up for sure and so i made two of the characters in the steampunk books uh cat and mouse are his fictional cousins and they're born in the same year. And the conceit is that, you know, my grandmother's grandfather is their cousin. That's so awesome because when you have your family story like so fleshed out, you know, going back so far, why wouldn't you draw on that for like for your books and stuff? And, you know, it's you're really fortunate to be able to, <laughs> to be able to do that. That's awesome. Yeah. That's so cool. So for those who maybe don't know or, or who are only into comics exclusively, can you describe what steampunk is? So for me, it's the disruption of the historical narrative. It's kind of a reimagining of uh, what's been called the best era that never was. So you kind of take uh, the elements of like, you know, Victoria, the Victorian era and blend them with that spirit of like technological and social innovation into a brand new thing. So for some people, it's very much an aesthetic practice. So it's, you know, taking pieces of costumes and blending them into characters and creating stories and cosplays around, you know, who this identity is, whether they're inventors or whether they're travelers or, you know, lords and ladies or, you know, a common thief, like they, it's very much like a a personal storytelling experience through costuming and through invention. Um, For other people, they're very drawn to that kind of uh, technological aesthetic where, you know, all the parts were on the outside so you could see how things worked. Mm, Yeah, Yeah. because it's using like the technology of the time to 
show the technology of today. So as if yeah. like computers were like steam powered or so or something like like you'd see all the gears and things like that, right? Yeah, exactly. Wow. Yeah, that's cool cuz I always understood it as as sort of that technological thing where you're fusing like modern technology with like the Victorian era technology and and innovation and like the world's fair sort of thing. Yeah, it's a blending of like modern sensibilities with like, you know, the older era. Right. And right. Uh, for me, what's really fun to play with is like the social evolution aspect of it. I was just going to say it goes deeper than just the technological fusion thing that happens. Like from what I'm getting from you, it, it's much more about that spirit of that time reimagined. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you can kind of, the fun thing about it is that you can kind of take what you like and toss what you don't. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a big sandbox where like, there aren't really that many rules. In fact, I would argue that there aren't any rules other than like a loose affiliation with the Victorian era. And even that can be played with a lot. Right. But they do have a particular aesthetic, right? They do have a particular aesthetic, but that, that aesthetic has been developed through collaboration over years by thousands of people. Mm -hmm. So like, there's no one right way to do it. It's always like, you know, everyone's adding their voice to it. Mm -hmm. People use steampunk to tackle like social issues a lot too. I have a friend who's really into steampunk and she has a disability. Uh, she invited me to this group called uh, Steampunkable because I started seeing uh, people in wheelchairs at like Fan Expo but with like steampunk yeah, wheelchairs or like steampunk uh, prosthetics and things like that. And for me, like seeing the stuff that people are doing as part of that group, it's really like a, like a taking back your, your power and like having ownership over um, some of the adaptations that you have to make, but in a very sort of old, classic kind of way like they're not it's not futurism where it's like where it's like it's so perfect that like that like you know i might as well just have a mechanical body they've chosen steampunk which is sort of this imperfect technology yeah i think that there's a lot of opportunity to do that you know in in the series that i write i i kind of diverged from our timeline around like like 1866 with like the a royal proclamation that accidentally introduced greater gender equality. Mm -hmm. So with that, you know, a, a fictional women's college was formed and eventually all of the female engineers, inventors and scientists working with their male counterparts introduced this technological revolution. And so it's very much about the play between, you know, how these social revolutions are spurring the technological growth and how the technological growth is spurring the social growth and the social expansion. Do you think that that comes from like the idea of like re-exploring, you know, the sort of the social mores comes from a desire to that they wish like what actually happened during the Victorian era happened a different way or, or, you know, like that there was greater gender equality and those sorts of things. I wouldn't say that it's necessarily wishing that it had happened back then, but it's definitely a way of kind of projecting our desires for today and tomorrow onto yesterday. Right, because there's sort of a romanticism yeah. of the past. Like, if this is where we could have been back then, then where would we be now? Right. So like you basically, we actually had airships. Like, right, so you could take the the sort of romanticism of the past and, like, classic eras 
while also recognizing sort of the social flaws of yes. those eras and correcting them. Yeah. So like with the uh, the idea of like steampunkable, one of my characters, the the whole idea of her story is that she's this very intelligent young woman who as as a child had some kind of accident that left her disabled. Okay. Or, you know, in what although she would never probably identify as that because her parents gave her access to all these books and she was able to access all these opportunities to study and was one of the first students at this college. And she ends up founding the the field of biomechanical engineering. Right. You know, something very steampunk like that. And what it means is that she never perceived her situation as being a barrier. She only saw possibilities. And that's kind of her superpower. She's kind of like this, the Tony Stark of the series. That's awesome. And so she crafts her beautiful mechanical leg, uh, a clockwork leg, and it never holds her back. And she actually uses her knowledge and her ability to invent, to reshape the society around her. And I would assume that the society that she lives in or the society that you've created uh, doesn't think it's odd that like a woman who is disabled would found like this biochemical or biomechanical engineering department. Because I mean, if it was real Victorian times that they'd probably look down on that sort of thing, on that sort of thing. But yeah, like I try to put some pushback into it because it's, right. a, it's a way of like honoring those struggles without erasing them. Right. It's a way of saying that like, you know, here's a person who has fought all of her life to, be recognized in this way and you kind of see that in the playback between like her and another character the protagonist's brother where you know he kind of admits that when he went to see her speak he thought that she was a dude and she was just like yeah you had a lot of you had a lot of apologizing to do after that right you know they're still struggling but they're able to do it because of the foundation of this social change and technological change and she really is the best like she's the most brilliant she's you know, she's the person who is instituting this change. And so they're kind of forced to pay attention to her. Yeah. And because social and technological consciousness is being awakened a lot earlier, they're a lot further than we would be yeah, at exactly. that time, I guess. That's cool. But I think we got a little bit ahead of ourselves. <laughs> I want people to know sort of what the Tales of Captain Duke is about. So Give me sort of a sort of a summary of, of what of what it's about, and then we'll go into like how you came up with the idea and that sort of thing. It's about a girl who runs away from her engagement party, stows away aboard an airship filled with gunpowder, and when pirates attack the ship, she saves their lives from certain peril and talks her way into joining the crew of the legendary Captain Duke. That's awesome. <laughs> I love that. It's a, it's a really cool elevator pitch. So, how did you get into uh, writing and writing these books eventually? So I've kind of always played around with story ideas. Like I've I've been a storyteller all my life, but I started really taking it seriously in university when I'd be working on my very important essays. And I had a notebook that I would write all these extra little ideas, these characters and scenes and themes that were coming to me. And um, I just kept them in this notebook and I never really revisited them. I was always like, okay, well, one day I'll write these down. One day I'll write a book. A few years ago when I was 25, I started taking my writing a lot more seriously. And I did like 
National Novel Writing Month, NaNoWriMo. Uh, the Toronto NaNoWriMo folks were so supportive. And even though my early stuff like completely sucked, I kind of had this, there would be moments where I was like, wait, like that scene or that character, like I'm really getting that. So around October 2012, I guess, yeah, because I found the file. I found the origin, like I found the original file on my laptop last fall and I was like just mind blown, like oh, weeping. Uh, like in my... the origin file of like the original idea? Yeah. Looking back yeah. after so many years? That's amazing. It's uh, It's pretty incredible because there's certain elements that are the same and are even just coming up in the third book. But... Uh, there's a lot that has completely changed and for the better. Mm -hmm. So cool. Yeah. So I started writing it back then and it was just this image of a girl in the cargo hold of an airship who was running away and, you know, meeting this dashing red haired captain and what was their story? So I was fascinated by that and I kept writing and, I, I met Neil Gaiman that year, actually, and he told me to keep writing. So every time I got discouraged, I was just like, well, Neil Gaiman told me I had to. So that's very inspiring. We might have been at the same event. Where did you where did you meet like him? up at the Danforth Music Hall? I'm not sure. I don't I don't think so. I think I went to the his his I've been to a few of them. I yeah. think the last one that was sort of outside of a bookstore that I went to was at the uh, Bluma Appel uh, Theater. Oh, yeah. He did like a Q&A thing. And then I think before that, he was at like the Bloor Street Church doing uh, a reading with Nalo Hobsonskin of, of Anansi Boys. Yeah. So. I only made it to... I've only lived in Toronto for about four years mm -hmm. now. But yeah, I made it to the one about the Danforth Music Hall. It was That's like cool. to support um, the ocean at the end of the lane. Oh yeah, yeah. And yeah. I, I bought the ocean at the end of the lane, but I didn't. I didn't go to his appearance for that. Yeah, that was like the freakiest book I read. And oh and, man, yeah, <laughs> for something that's like it's about a kid and like i thought Coraline was a little bit scary, but this <laughs> this sort of pushes it even even further. Definitely. That's really interesting because, yeah, he is really inspiring in terms of, you know, for aspiring writers and, and, and those sorts of things and really encouraging, which which I like. Uh, also, probably one of the most accessible writers for, like, questions and dialogue with, with his fans. Oh, so, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so. like, it, it really makes you think, like, now that I'm, you know, a few years into being an author and now, like, having fans that come up and tell me that they wrote like i at com or at fan expo in the fall this woman came to me dressed as rocket raccoon wow. which was amazing yeah she had an amazing costume and she told me that she had finished uh the book that she'd been working on and that she did it her way and she listened and she was basically like saying back like advice that i'd said in my panel the year before like verbatim wow it was so incredible and so People like like Neil Gaiman, like they really make you think about once you are a creator, like how you're going to honor that responsibility to your fellow creators. And if you're also going to shine a light on the path behind you and be like this way through the dark forest of your mind. And how <laughs> like how reciprocal it is, like Neil yeah. Gaiman inspires you and then you inspire this other lady. So it's really like magical, like how that system sort of works so organically. Yeah, it's really beautiful. And so I have a lot of respect for that and and for the impact that he has on a lot of young creators. That's awesome. So 
you're writing around, I guess, like 2012 is when you was the idea, kind of. Yeah, yeah. So okay. 2012, I hadn't quite moved to Toronto yet, but I was looking to, and I was back home working on this music festival in my hometown, and I started writing this book, and it was supposed to just be like a little side project, like just get this idea out of my head while. I was going to be working on my this like near future dystopia with glow in the dark bikes. Was this during university or a, or after? After, yeah, okay. a so couple what years did, after. What did you take in in university? Like, what did you go to school for? I did a joint honors in political science and women's studies. Oh, cool. Yeah, so I've got a lot of political theory, um, postmodernism, gender theory, and like the history of the women's movement. I convinced one of my professors to let me do an independent study unit of Mad Men. Oh, I loved Mad Men. Yeah, yeah, and so did she, and so I knew that she'd let me do it. That's awesome. <laughs> what ended up happening is she's just like, okay, you can do a course on Mad Men, but you're going to have to read all of these, like, kind of original texts on, like, the history of the women's movement, too. And I'm like, all right, fine. I'll spend a semester reading and watching this awesome show. And So it was, like, from, was it the 60s women's movement that you were reading about, or was it from Suffragette all the way up to Even the Even earlier, movement? so, okay. like, yeah, so I was reading, like you know, A Strange Stirring, which details stuff around the feminine mystique by Betty Friedan, even going into like Helen Gurley Brown, just like kind of chronicling like the history of the women's movement and the different pressures and tensions that exist there all the way up to like, you know, the current like intergenerational tensions between feminists and what, you know, could even be called like the fourth wave now of like the 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 internet era. You know, the feminist blogosphere. And that's quite the knowledge base for the book that you're writing, right? Like, Yeah, like it's fun to tease that out into different characters. Like the story is very much about like a bunch of pirates going around. But the foundation for that is that you have Clara as the protagonist who comes, who is a woman of like rather high birth, Mm -hmm. but kind of trying to shake loose from these social roles but because of her privilege as a, a young highborn woman it's a bit more difficult for her to escape that as it is for you know Nessa who's very much a working class woman who's always been working and so it's not that much of a leap for her to go from like having to find full-time work as a seamstress to jumping on the nearest airship and being like well nope I want to be a pirate right it's and like very independent yeah Yeah. and then you have cat who's one of the younger characters and she's grown up in this world where it's never she's never encountered an expectation that she wouldn't be who she is so her experience is very different from both theirs because she doesn't see those she doesn't see the same you know barriers that you know, Clara or Nessa would. It's really awesome. So how did you end up getting the books published? And uh, what was that experience like? Well, at first, I was just really terrified to share my writing with anyone. So I thought that I would just put the first book up online. They're they're a series of novellas. So they're shorter books. Um, The first one's only it clocks in at around 100 pages or so. And I decided that I was going to put it up as an ebook. Mm-hmm. And that way I could practice having people read my stuff. I didn't think that anyone would really read it. I sold eight copies, eight, <laughs> eight ebooks. Congratulations. Thank you. I was really happy with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and immediately, like, my family uh, started clamoring for print books and friends in Toronto and friends in Ottawa. So I convinced my, my friend who had 
to who had done my cover design to help me create a book cover <laughs> and uh, did a series of print books. And I was only I was only going to print off 50, which seems really funny in retrospect. But my mom convinced me to do 100. And I organized a little book tour between my hometown for Thanksgiving and then Ottawa the next weekend where I'd gone to school and then in Toronto where I was living currently. So uh, the books were sold out in the first day uh, because of a very supportive hometown (laughs) and home community and a very big family. So they were gone and I had to panic and order more books that arrived the day before I went to Ottawa for the next leg of the tour. (laughs) And uh, that was kind of when I first realized like, oh, like, okay, so people enjoy this people are interested in this like let's see how i can expand it and from there it went into like people that i knew or new people that i knew sharing it with more people and i'd get emails randomly from nowhere being like hey my friend's mother is friends with your aunt Lorene, and you know they 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 gave this book to me and i love it like like who are you like are you writing more like when's the next one coming out so that was really exciting. And I released the second book in May 2015. And that is when things really started rolling. And a lot of the, there was a lot more interest from, you know, strangers and people that I'd never met, met before. And I started doing conventions and everything. So like it w- kind of happened by accident. I started my own publishing company because I was like, oh, this is a thing. I guess mm-hmm. I should you know, learn how to do this properly. And uh, the internet is a really great resource for when you suddenly have a series on your hand. Yeah, like we have a lot of people in here that self-publish comics, but you're the first person that we've had that self-publishes books. So why did you go the route of self-publishing instead of sort of the the old school route of like trying to find a literary agent trying to send it off to publishers and that sort of thing tell me a little bit about that you're thinking that there uh i think i was just impatient (laughs) (laughs) i was impatient and i was scared and i had read so much uh research um you know books by you know margaret atwood and stephen king and neil gaiman on writing and what it was like to write and publish and be part of that. And I knew that I wanted to be a writer, but I didn't want to wait to have someone tell me that I could be a writer. And I I kind of wanted people to see that process of becoming, of becoming a better writer. Like the first book is, is lovely and great, but the third book is so much better. Right. And even the writing that I'm doing now, like I can see how much I've grown as a writer since writing The Stowaway Debutante, which is the the first book in the series. And right now I'm working on like the fourth book in the series and uh, another book that's separate from the steampunk stuff that I'm actually going to submit to some publishers and agents and do things the traditional route on that side of things. Yeah, because I guess you, you, you I've believe literally that you're never confident done that. <laughs> and, and more ready for that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think that self-publishing first, it, it was a really great opportunity to establish my own voice and connect with my readers and have an idea of who they were and and what I wanted this experience to be like before I reached out to, you know, more people in the publishing community. 
because, you know, it, it gives you a stronger footing, a stronger sense of like who you are and of what you can offer to them as a, as an author. But it also gives you this beautiful experience of this connection with your fans that I don't think that traditional authors always get. Right. Like there's this really beautiful moment right now where I'd say 80% of the people that read my books have had some kind of personal interaction with me. That's awesome. Either at conventions or through friends of friends or, you know, even just online. That's not something that every author can say. And so to all of these people, like thousands of people, I am their their like little undiscovered treasure, like this gem that they have found. And I really like want to honor and respect that relationship because Mm -hmm. it's so meaningful to me. Like I would not be like writing to this degree if they weren't pushing me to, to get better all the time. As the groundswell of support got bigger and bigger and you're writing more and more books that are part of a series, did like traditional publishers start to notice Uh, Not yet, but like, it's more that, you know, you become part of a community. So you, you know, more people. So it's like when, when I have something that is uh, another book that's publishable, like the steampunk series is always going to be independent um, for now, at least. But just to be part of that community and honor that and honor that community and, and the way that it came into being sort of thing? I think, but also because it's just so, I mean, like it's a series of novellas and novellas don't typically, like Tor is doing some really great things, the novellas, and they have some fantastic novellas on their docket right now. Um, Coach House as well. Yeah, yeah, Coach House has some great things. But, um, you know, this little series of novellas, like if it it can find a, a good home or like an omnibus edition, that'd be fun. But no, it's it's flown pretty under the radar, and I'm kind of happy about that. Cool. Yeah, because that way, like, you know, it's there's not too much attention, and then once it's finished, like once that series is finished, then you know, then I'm fine with more people taking a look at it, and right because you can release it in its entirety, like it's it's sort of like a comic because it's yeah. like an ongoing trade edition. Trade, right? <laughs> That's awesome. So that's really cool. I, I really like like the independent spirit. It seems like you, in the way that you're putting it together, you're sort of following uh, the characters and like the spirit of steampunk in general. And like, it's very like, I don't, I'm not going to wait for anything. I'm just going to take the bull by the horns. I, I really like that. That's yeah. Really cool. I really didn't realize how much I was writing of like my personal viewpoints into Claire at the time. But ever since then, people have pointed it out to me at every Q&A session. Did you know that you're kind of like Clara? I'm like, yes, yes, I, I see that now. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sure every author has like a little piece of them in every character that they do, even the evil ones. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Although those I name for my the people that wrong my friends. Oh, so there's a backstory there too? Oh, yeah, like all the bad characters, kind of like the the not so pleasant people. I usually just kind of canvas my friends and I'm like, who do we hate? <laughs> who, who do you want to enact, enact vengeance on? Today? I wonder if like any of those people have ever like accidentally read your book and been like, hey, what? <laughs> oh, I know of at least one of them who, who is currently reading. Oh, <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome. I hope they're not too close to you anymore. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, good. That's cool. 
yeah it's amazing how like the the community and like the rumor mill and like how people find out about things and it's pretty crazy what you're talking about though you mentioned earlier in the conversation how like there was a point at which you wanted to start concentrating on your writing more and like instead of having it be just a book of ideas that you jot down like you actually wanted to like enter like writing competitions and and those sorts of things what inspired that switch in in your mind what made you commit to this life I think it comes down to coffee shops. When I was in university, I lived in a a household with six roommates. So I did not get a lot of studying done at home. And there was this great fair trade coffee shop in Ottawa called Bridgehead. Um, Shout out to my Bridgehead fans, if, uh, if there are any here. And they they were great. I would go there all the time. My parents ended up getting me like one of those unlimited gift cards that they would just reload. Oh, I wish there was those were like more available. Oh, it seems like the corporate coffee shops have made it so that there's never going to be unlimited gift cards again. You have yeah. to go to the independents for those. Yeah. And so it was like, I really loved it. Um, I, I would go all the time. I started getting like straight A's because I was just always at the coffee shop. And so I built up that habit and like a, a pretty no healthy... No distractions, I guess. Well, I, I think that I like I need like a base level of distractions so that I can focus. Like right. I need something to ignore. Like if there's nothing to ignore, then I kind of like get distracted. Mm. Yeah. And something about that coffee shop vibe of like being around other people, because like writing is such a solitary activity it, it is. that, you know, you kind of want to be surrounded by people while you're doing it. Mm. Yeah, no, it, it definitely is like... I always need, I, I never quite get the nerve to like go out in public and do my writing, even though people <laughs> encourage me to do, to do that. But I do definitely uh, identify with like the, the din of having like the no, a noise, like the podcast or the TV or something yeah. on. Like I can't have complete silence because it's too it's distracting. squirrely and yeah. it makes me too anxiety ridden to be like, sitting in complete silence like something has to be going on right yeah i totally get that yeah and so once i was done university um i would still go to the coffee shops and i'd bring those notebooks and i would write more stories and i always had an idea that it was always for later like i would do this later and then you know the one fall like i was I was unemployed i was you know kind of working in this music festival back home and I just I had a lot of time on my hands. And so while I was looking for work, I started writing more. And I just started getting even clearer visions of what I wanted a story to be. I got about uh, 20,000 words into the one story about the, the glow-in-the-dark bikes before I realized that it was complete crap and I needed to try something else. Uh, it must have been a little bit discouraging to have to switch gears. It so was so in. discouraging. I thought that I was going to work on this little steampunk idea until I eventually went back and fixed that. And I think that I might, I, I'll probably use that material for something else in the future, but it it was very much supposed to be this little diversion before I went back and fixed this other big grand idea that I was going to work on. Mm-hmm. So it's so funny how like the diversion becomes the grand idea becomes the grand idea. Sort yeah. Of. Yeah. And it was actually funny with the, the steampunk series because like I had such an overarching vision for the series that uh, initially I was imagining it as like one book. 
And so right about the point that I was going to get discouraged and be like, I'm never going to finish this. I realized that it was a series of novellas and that I'd already finished the first one in half the second. Mm -hmm. So it was, uh, it was pretty fun to see it more as like an episodic style. So you can, you know, start with like the airship and then move on from there and expand the world a little bit bigger. And then from there, like expand the world like a little bit bigger in book three and introduce some of these other characters. And then in book four, like wrap it all together and, you know, show them what the mystery was. And you can feel better about it because like that's how they used to write books in Victorian times, right? Like they didn't exactly. come out all at once. Exactly. And I wanted it to be kind of like those classic sci-fi serials, you know, those you know, the, the 25 cent paperbacks that you could pick up. Right. Like the Doc Savages or like the Tarzans. Yeah. Or those sorts of Edgar Rice Burroughs type stuff. And, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Like uh, H.G. Wells, The Time Machine. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a tiny little book. So, mm-hmm. and especially in today where we're so distracted all the time and even like a voracious bookworm like me, I've barely read three books this year. Yeah. It's, it's really tough because, you know, I'm a journalist, so not only am I reading mm-hmm. fiction, but I have to read nonfiction, and I have to read articles, and I have to read magazines, and there's too much stuff going on. Comics, too. Yeah. So, like, I, I don't know if, I, if I've, for a long time, been able to, like, digest one book all the way through. I always have to go between mediums and come back <laughs> eventually to I'm reading Jonathan Strange and, and Mr. Neural right now, oh, and it I is that. I love that book so much. Oh, I love it. I love it so much. I it's just it's taking me a while because it's it, like there's so many footnotes. I love it. Yeah, I, I like her footnotes and like the world building in that book is like really really unparalleled. But that was like one of the really really dense reading experiences that I've that I've had. Yeah, where like that was all I was reading at the time, and I got the impression that like. There's some people that have like one grand amazing novel in them and then that's sort of that's sort of it. Like that's their life's work. And Yeah, then, that took her like 10 years. I know. I know. I know. She has a lot more patience than I exactly. do. Exactly. And 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 she, I don't think she's ever she's tried to release other things and I don't think they've hit in the same in the same sort of way as Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. But um, the only advice that I can give you is don't watch the miniseries while you're while you're reading. Yeah, <laughs> Read yeah, the book I'm, first and let it sit with you for a bit before you go on to the, the miniseries. That's my, that's my plan. <laughs> cool. It's awesome. You've been listening to Speech Bubble. Back after this. This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Harry Tarantula. Go visit them at 6979 Young Street for their games nights. They've got Warhammer, they've got Star Wars miniatures, they've got Dungeons and Dragons, and they have board games nights. Go to HarryT.com for the schedule and enjoy some serious gaming. Welcome back, and now more Speech Bubble. I wanted to talk about Ladies Night, and I think the way that I can get into that is like, you have that background in feminist history and and gender politics and that sort of thing and ladies night fascinates me because it confronts directly sort of issues that we're going through now as a society particularly in you know fandom circles like there's definitely been issues with 
uh, gender and fandom because, you know, it's issues. sort of a, a middle-dominated <laughs> medium. So I wanted to get your uh, impression of that. Like, how do you see fandom and where we are in terms of, in terms of gender relations? Because uh, I don't know a lot. Like, I'm part of the, the dominant gender in this, in this medium. So where do sort of comics and gender intersect and those sorts of issues? Why is um, Ladies' Night necessary? So I think first off, there's this, there's this perception that comics and sci-fi, even steampunk or fantasy, has like always been male dominated. And the fun thing with like my books is that you can kind of turn it that on its head and be like, well, what if it wasn't? But the reality is, is that um, fandom was largely female driven for decades. Like if you look at those first like Star Trek conventions that are kind of seen as like the origins of fandom and, and con culture, they were like mostly women. Mm. They were mostly women and they were organized by women and it was a very female driven event and culture. Over the years, you know, that has shifted to varying degrees. Um, it speaks a lot to like the the bleeding of conventional society into our, you know, kind of science fiction and fantasy realms that a lot of male authors would be given a lot more kind of authority, they would be ascribed a lot more authority and respect because of their gender, as opposed to, you know, like luminaries like Ursula K. Le Guin. Although, you know, like, never tell her that like she would, I I can't picture anyone like putting Ursula K. Le Guin into a corner, you know, right? No one puts Ursula into a corner. Right. And, And it's weird, because in Victorian times, like we were talking about, like, reading in general was seen as such like a woman's pursuit right and then well reading popular fiction but you still had like those incredible people like ada lovelace Mm -hmm. you know ada lovelace was doing like original mathematical research and computing like women have always been doing this stuff Mm -hmm. it's just that their stories weren't being told right and then you get like the men sort of taking over yeah and so then you have like this flawed perception of like Oh, woman, but, you know, we're only celebrating male scientists because women don't do science. And it's like, well, actually, <laughs> let me just, well, actually, you for a minute. There's Ada Lovelace. There's like, you know, like Mary Somerville. Mary Somerville was like one of the first women inducted into the Royal Astronomical Society in Britain. And that was like early 1800s. There's this idea that, that women aren't involved in these in these fields or, or in these fandoms. And it's just dead wrong. Right. So when you look at the way that, you know, fandom has evolved in our modern era, like, look at Tumblr and tell me that teenage girls aren't driving fandom. Yeah, totally. They've created this whole terminology of like, you know, ships and OTPs and Comic Shop Ladies Night is really an opportunity to celebrate that in Mm. an environment where that is like completely respected. And the great thing about kind of like woman identified fan culture not to be like, you know, trans-exclusive here or anything like that. But the great thing about that kind of culture is that it's less of like a one-upping, uh, that one-upmanship that you sometimes find in geek culture, where it's like, oh, like, well, you like Spider-Man, like, which uh, which series did this come from? Like, who was the author? Who was the illustrator? Yeah, you kind of have to have like that. To be test- you're testing people all the time? Yeah, yeah, and instead, like, at Comic Shop Ladies' Night, you'll have a situation where... Yeah, like, well, here's a real example. We were at the Sidekick comic shop at 
over in uh, Leslieville. Mm-hmm. And they have a, a beautiful space in front of the fireplace and some chairs and whatnot. And we were having our meeting. And I look up and there's a statuette of Batman on horse. And I'm like, that's so funny. Like, it looks like the Batman figure is like actually on the horse. I'm like, it's one statue. I'm like, why is Batman on a horse? Because I'd never read that series. Right. And I turned to Diana, uh, Diana McCollum of... Um, uh, from superheroes and she's our, our resident batman expert and i'm just like diana enlighten me and she's just like i have been waiting all my life for someone to ask me this question <laughs> and gave me the detailed history of like why batman was on the horse and why this was such an iconic moment so it's less of like a like you have to know everything about the thing in order to be a fan and more like if you don't know a thing then there is going to be someone in that room who can tell you about the thing and we're happy to tell you and about are happy thing. about it it's yeah. like it's less of like a you don't know about that and more of like a oh my god i'm so excited for you to discover the thing that i love yeah totally and i mean the sidekick is my favorite comic shop in toronto at the moment and i think that shop uh follows that spirit of education oh absolutely chris has done an amazing job like curating that space Mm -hmm. for sure for sure yeah so it's really that like element of like creating a space where you know, whereas in some cases, comic shops were seen as kind of a barrier to women. Like, you know, there was that classic, like, a woman enters a comic shop and all the heads turn and more of like a space where um, people that are woman identified can really feel comfortable being in that space, expressing themselves, knowing that there won't be that kind of condescension or judgment or anything like that, creating like a safe space for them to explore and celebrate these things. I always thought it was super peculiar that, like, I mean, comic shops were always for everyone, but, it, like, we were the people who created the spaces that, you know, were unwelcoming. Like, like you created your own stereotype yeah. to make sure that you kept people out of, cer- of, certain sp- of certain spaces. And it's fascinating to me because I've had such a different experience than than a lot of, of women in the city and a lot of fans in the city, I guess, because... Like my my introduction to comic shops was was the Silver Snail and running into like Jules there and having her have a list of recommendations for me when I was like, so I finished Sandman, what's next? <laughs> right, that's awesome, and I think it's the benefit of coming up when when you came up in, mm-hmm. in these comic shops. Like now, like Jules is the manager of the Silver Snail, like right now, but you know only a few. Uh, decades before i mean it was it was it, it was a lot harder you know people have told me um but like you said you know women have always been around like some of the best letter hacks in the back of comics uh, questioning you know why things were happening and certain issues yeah. were women so yeah there was there was definitely things happening yeah like i think that the first thing we have to do is move beyond this conceit that women have never been a part of this, that they're Mm -hmm. just coming into this now and, you know, taking up space that doesn't belong to them. It's like, no, we've always been here. I think, though, because, like, the very act of comic shop ladies' night sort of compartmentalizes it a little bit in the sense that, like, you're calling it comic shops ladies night so there's there's this mainstream awareness that this thing is happening for women exclusively and i think the assumption because that's sort of the public face of it like comic shop ladies night for women 
I think people just assume like, oh, they're doing that because they didn't get that kind of thing before. So yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that, I mean, like to, to some degree, that stereotype is very true. Right. Like there's a lot of, um, you know, like early fans or casual fans or, you know, super fans who just haven't felt comfortable inhabiting comic shops in the same way. And right. for us, that's part of the reason why we chose to have it on a rotating basis at comic shops around the city. Mm-hmm. Because we've had situations where, you know, like when we had it at the Sidekick, like the Sidekick had opened not too far before we had our first comic shop ladies night there. And um, it was a really great way to introduce women to that space. We had women who lived in that neighborhood who had never gone in there, who are there like every weekend now. I I love the transformation that happens because that space is a coffee shop. Mm -hmm. So it's more inviting than people think a comic shop is supposed to be like you go there for coffee and you get your comics by magical osmosis yeah you know what i mean yeah exactly which i love i think that's like coffee and comics a brilliant strategy (laughs) because you go there for coffee and then you're like oh comics and the more you go there the more curious you get yeah and you're and you're always going to find something new that you want to love yeah and there and I'd love like the the curated selections of like what they think that people are going to be really drawn to in the store. Right, exactly. And it's it's sort of it sort of protects you from being overwhelmed because if you go to a place like 1 million comics or you know some of the more stereotypical comic shops in the city, there's just too much and too many things to figure out what you might be interested in or there is. what you can jump in on and, and that sort of thing. There is. And that's one of the reasons why we like partnering with the comic shops because they want like people to be able to come and engage with their material and their products in uh, a comfortable environment. So, you know, like we, we go in there after hours, we have a bunch of women, we have people who are experts on all these different things and you'll be browsing the comics and someone will say like, oh, I just read that. Or someone will be like, oh, like, have you read this? And so you get a lot of those personal recommendations that are kind of hard to find in an environment where, you know, let's be honest, like a lot of people have different levels of comfort and social anxieties at these events. Right. So we'll have like, you know, if you want to be really social, you can you can chat, but otherwise, like we'll have like a, a coloring table so people can just color comic book pages and not talk to anyone until they feel ready. Mm-hmm. But we do have a lot of those like those opportunities for those like low key interactions where you can just get those recommendations and discover a new series that you've never heard of before from people that are, you know, usually pretty like minded and you know, invested in making sure that you can discover these exciting things. Right. And it's really interesting to see that, like, comic shops are starting to become more inviting spaces just in themselves. Yeah, like hubs, yeah. You know, the fact that, like, Silver Snail has partnered with Black Canary, the Mm -hmm. fact that the sidekick exists, the fact that, like, Page and Panel is in the reference library. Oh, I love Page and Panel. So, So it seems like the things that that comic shop ladies nights and not just yours but ones that have happened Mm -hmm. around the city have sort of been the forerunner of comic shops themselves changing permanently not just for a night or two yeah and i think that that's part of the history of it like i only got involved about 
a year and a half ago uh, when Alice Quinn asked me if I would like to be part of the organizing committee. She knew that I had some event organizing experience, but the it originated as um, an or like a a regular evening at the I think it's Comic Book Embassy. Yeah, yeah. Um, before it closed down. Yeah, the Comic Book Embassy. It's it's a studio. And uh, yeah, we we've had uh, Megan Kearney on before, and she she is like she runs the the comic book embassy. Oh wait, I think I'm getting that wrong. What was oh. the comic shop that oh the closed? Oh, the comic uh, book lounge and gallery. Oh, comic book lounge. Yeah. Yes, 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 comic book lounge and gallery. Kevin Boyd's uh, old shop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yes. Oh no, the comic comic book embassy folks. They are they are amazing, and we have a lot of them come out to the comic shop ladies' right. night. Yeah, no, Comic Book Lounge. That that's the the place where it all started. Yeah, because I think it was Kevin Boyd and his, and his girlfriend uh, Deborah Jane Shelley that yes. that really spearheaded the first uh, Comic Shop Ladies Night in in the city. And uh, Deborah, who has now passed away, it, mm-hmm. it was like a huge part of of that. She was, she was, and so this continuation of it is part of the way that we kind of honor her legacy of like really wanting to create those welcoming spaces. And uh, a way of bringing that forward. Um, and I and I like that, like the mentality is changing. Like instead of you know your your dusty basements and your your back issue bins and your sort of like you know sort of more socially ostracizing comic shops, comic shops are starting to to open up. Yeah, exactly. And I think that like there's a lot of things that we're we're able to do with Comic Shop Ladies Night that that would be really beneficial to bring into like daily life with comic shops you know like like recognizing that they're community hubs and recognizing that people there want those positive interactions where they can you know discover new things and just and talk about things that they love you know and i think that they're they're really like we have such a a strong slate of comic shops in this city i mean like i i haven't lived in other cities that much but i can tell you that we that you we're do. pretty spoiled in terms of flavors of comic yeah. shops and diversity in what like these shops specialize in i think it's pretty unparalleled it is Canada. like we're really spoiled um i feel really spoiled uh and especially since like like i remember i went to i went to some event and I met Alice there and I was like, where is everyone? She's like, what do you mean? This, this is everyone. And I'm looking around this event and it's all guys. And I'm like, no, but like, where's everyone else? And it was my first, and this was like maybe November. And that was like the first time that I'd been to like a comics event that was dominated by guys. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, they're like, yeah, no, this is, this is what it used to usually be like. And I'm like, huh. This is so strange. It felt like anthropological where I was just like, oh, like, let's investigate what this feels like. It's interesting hearing your perspective because it's like, it's like you are being exposed to this community at the time where we've like, we've sort of already, we're already starting to like explore these issues. I mean. Yeah. I mean, like I, I met a bunch of my, my current Toronto friends at that we we were talking about this earlier the secret loves of geek girls it panel launch, yeah yeah, yeah cool. like there was a panel in the summer before they they did the whole launch and i went alone because i had moved to the city and i had i'd you know made a bunch of friends but i didn't have enough geek friends so i was like i'm going to go to this panel and i'm going to talk to people 
and it's going to be great. And the panelists, I just remember looking at them and being like, I want to be friends with all of these people. And actually, I, I do count a lot of them as my good friends now. So <laughs> that's awesome. You, you, you accomplished what you set out, what you set out to accomplish. I think it was a, this beautiful, perfect storm of like, there was the panel on, I think it was like a, a Tuesday or a Wednesday. And then there was actually a comic shop ladies night like that Saturday. Oh, so you could like jump right in. Yeah. So I met them. I met a bunch of them on the Tuesday and then we all hung out at this comic shop ladies night on the Saturday. And like, that is how our friendships formed. Yeah. And, and this community is so supportive that it like is, yeah. people love it when like they get a new person that they can, uh, you know, introduce to everyone and, and uh, welcome. Yeah. Everyone is so friendly and so welcoming and so close knit that like, and I know that's often like the, the close knit aspect and the welcoming aspect don't always go together. But in Toronto, it does like everyone introduces everyone to everyone like it's quantum Toronto. Yeah, because like, I mean, the idea is to make people feel more comfortable. It'd be kind of an anathema if like comic book ladies night was ostracizing. Yeah, like, some cliquey thing. Yeah, it'd be weird. It's not really the the principle of what they're no not at all it's so welcoming and and i mean like and i can speak to that from experience like i only really got involved with them yeah that'd be about it'd be two years ago this summer and i made so many of my like best friends in the city from those experiences and through those shared interests do you think that like this idea in the comics community is just a microcosm of like the sort of general social awareness and like awareness of diversity that people are experiencing in the times that we're living in? I mean, I've never been called out so much or had to be aware of so many things at once uh, and so many different shades of those things yeah. at any other time that I've been than I've been alive. Right? I think it speaks to our social sensibilities are changing. Like we grew up on very important messages in our comics and our cartoons right. and our after school programming. So we built we were we grew up with a built in awareness of like you know, don't be racist, don't be sexist, don't be, you know, homophobic. Mm -hmm. And we've kind of just applied those, we've learned to apply those in a broader sense and our standards have raised. Yeah, like not only have we applied what we learned as children, but we're expecting more yeah. within those issues. And I think that expecting more and holding our heroes accountable, like that's a good thing. Right. Totally. And I think that people can rise to the occasion. Like in my experience, they've been able to. If you've never been to a comic shop ladies night and you're new, what is there to do? What can people expect from the actual night itself? So first off, we have door prizes and those are pretty amazing. We'll usually do like hourly giveaways and everyone gets to like enter their name in. So there's always like some fun prizes to be won. And it's kind of like an hourly call in where everyone kind of gets together and, you know, we'll hear from Alice. We'll like check in with our sponsors and uh, give away some great prizes. And it can be anything from like artwork, books, uh, comics. Usually um, like the creators themselves will be there and they'll donate like their latest project that they're working on or some back issues that they have. And uh, you you get that experience of like getting some back issues from like your creator. Like uh, we were talking about Megan Carney earlier. Yeah. We've, we've had like stuff from her before. Yeah. So there's, there's giveaways. 
Uh, there's usually snacks involved. Um, the past few, we've had uh, tastings by, who's with us now? Uh, Muskoka. Oh. Tastings by Muskoka Brewery. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we have a coloring table for people that, you know, just want to color. And like, we all get in there. Like I have, I, this last one that we had in, the one previous to this one in February, we had like a Galentine's Day edition. So we had little Galentine's, like little Valentine's Day ones that oh, you could color awesome. in. That's cool. That's really cool. Yeah. So I have a bunch of those pinned to my my bulletin board at work. When you approach businesses to like sponsor or like supply like food or that sort of thing, what's the reaction that you generally get? Um, abundant enthusiasm. <laughs> like literally everyone just loves this idea of like an after hours, like woman only party at a comic shop. And like, it's, it's really chill. Like, it's not like a rager. It's like, no. it's just like everyone just just hanging out and chatting and having a good time. Yeah. And they all want to support that. And there's been a lot of interest from these different companies to like, uh, support, you know, female fans. It's re- it's really awesome because I think we're discovering because of where pop culture is, everyone seems to have that little latent geek in them, and maybe Comic Shop Ladies Night, you yeah. know, speaks to that. So when like everyone has the thing that they're really nerdy about, right. like everyone has something, even if they're not like a huge like reader of comic books, like you know, we'll we'll get people in there, and they're like. So who watch, who watches Supernatural? And then like everyone's hand shoots up. <laughs> They're like, and then they'll just talk about that. It's great. That's awesome. We're, we're so spoiled for the media right now. Yeah, yeah, totally. So where do you want um, a comic shop Lisa to go in the future? What, like, what are the plans? Because I mean, you, you don't just have this as over snail. You have this all over the place. Yeah. Um, you've had it, you know, many places. What, what are, is the future of this initiative? I really see this as like a, a rotating evening so that we can kind of use it to introduce female co- comics fans to the different shops around the city. Mm-hmm. Because like you might live in one neighborhood and always go to one place, but, you know, we would never have found the sidekick if we hadn't been like looking through and being like, okay, where haven't we gone yet? Right. And reaching out to Chris and being like, hey, can we have an event? <laughs> Do you think that there's going to be like... Do you think you're ever going to like run out of places or is is there ever going to be sort of sort of an an, an exhaustion? I think that in the, the, the hardest part is going to be like having enough events in a year for this rotation because like we've already been back to Sidekick and we've already been back to Page and Panel. <laughs> so like we it's hard because like we have such a great time at every comic shop that we always want to go back. Right. But we have so many other comic shops to go to first. And so it's going to be probably expanding the number of events we can do each year. Or um, there's been some interest in doing some, you know, fundraisers uh, with like, you know, a comic shop ladies night bowling event or something. That'd be awesome. Yeah. So kind of just, I think that the the goal is to take this spirit of a of the community that we've been able to create and curate. And we we have worked so hard to curate that. And that welcoming community space mm-hmm. and those bonds between people that, you know, kind of expanding that sense of community to other events, whether yeah. it's like bowling or, you know, meetups and whatnot. And like, 
comic shop ladies night it it prides itself on being super inclusive in terms of ability in terms of lgbtq uh, people in the community so talk a little bit about that and 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 why that was an important part of what you do because that's a really huge pillar of of what you're doing yeah well like one of the dynamics that we we felt was really important was ensuring that it was an inclusive space uh, a safer space because you know you can't always guarantee that something's gonna be safe a safe space but you can you can work very hard to make sure that it's safer and so that's why we do things like post accessibility um you know requirements on you know the facebook page because all the comic shops have different levels of accessibility you know whether they have like washrooms what stairs are involved that kind of stuff mm-hmm. um we always make sure to iterate that we are emphatically queer and trans friendly so that means that and that's why we always refer to it as like woman identified right. so it's like you know um we have a we actually have like a a, a growing number of a uh, woman coming out who who are who identifies trans and that's just been incredible because seeing how comfortable and how happy they are like it makes me feel really great because that's a very hard thing to do mm-hmm. and ensuring that they have a space where they feel that they can come to and relax and just talk about their favorite ships and comics and give recommendations like um we feel very honored that that people in the trans community trust us to curate that experience and it's something that we hope to continue yeah because people in the trans community they get judged everywhere else they go so it's nice to have a space that has no judgment and and is actually real and backs that backs it up yeah and i mean and it's something that you have to be so so careful of because Mm -hmm. um it's very easy to get wrong Mm -hmm. um and i mean like it, it, it's definitely something that, you know, could go wrong in the future. So that's why we always try to be like, you know, it's a safer space and we want to be inclusive, but, you know, acknowledging that there is some risk there. Especially in the times that we're living in, it seems like you always have to be hyper aware of like the new terminology, the new yeah. social mores, that sort of thing. So what does the committee do to make sure that they're not accidentally stepping where they shouldn't where they shouldn't go in terms of minorities and that sort of thing i think that we do a really good job of talking amongst ourselves so like the the committee right now as it stands is alice quinn aaron cosser uh diana mccollum and myself rebecca dm and we we have like a, a group chat where we'll we'll check in with each other and you know if anyone is feeling uncomfortable about a certain issue we uh, we talk to each other. So like I have a like I have an honors degree in in women's studies. So I'm familiar with a lot of the terminology a- in a way that you know I have that foundational education that a lot of people might not have access to. Mm-hmm. So that's something that I'm you know I'm very privileged to have. And so I try to use that knowledge to be like, okay, so, you know, in these event pages, in these groups, like, we need to post, like, the the accessibility of the space. We need to write out that these are emphatically queer and trans-friendly spaces. Because once you put that out there, you are creating that immediate expectation that when people are coming into that space, they need to be uh, respectful and inclusive and generous and empathetic and kind. So when you create that expectation, you know, you're creating a space where that's, that's the assumption that you're going to be respectful of people's identities. And it's not a hard thing to do. Like it's, it's, amazingly simple 
Mm-hmm. It's like that whole, um, you know, when you look at conventions and everything, the whole cosplay is not consent thing. Like once you put that out there, once you create that assumption, that expectation, it's so easy. But it's getting to the point of putting those assumptions out there that, that seems to be the difficult part. Yeah, I think you need to tell people how they're supposed to treat others in a way because yeah. because otherwise, like, you you just don't know, right? But then as soon as you do that people follow suit for the most part like you haven't had any problems at comic shop ladies night no no and and like we've talked about what we would do if there was a problem and so like we've made sure that people know that they can reach out to us that they can talk to us that we are there to listen to them if they have any concerns and like there's a lot of trust in our community that if something did happen it would be addressed in like a responsible respectful way and, you know, that's that's them putting a lot of faith in us as a committee. But, you know, that's a responsibility that we have because we've promised to create a space that's going to be, um, you know, accessible, inclusive, all of that. Right. And it makes it it makes it so much easier for everyone if like the expectations are set and, yeah. and everybody knows what they are and like there's no ambiguity. Exactly. And if we can't meet them. So, for example, at like the Silver Snail, there's stairs. Right. So. You know, we put that out there. We're just like, listen, like, this is the space that we're dealing with. Like, these are the limitations. So, and with the great thing about it being rotating is that even if, you know, the silver snail isn't accessible to, you know, people with mobility devices, the next month, like, we might be at a different comic shop that has barrier free access. Right. That's awesome. Uh, I wish there were more comic shops in the city with with barrier free access. Yeah. Uh, I, and I, Every time comic shops move around, which has been happening lately because, you know, the mm-hmm. beguiling left uh, Mar- their Markham Street location and and Harry Tranchla closed their downtown location and moved and like they are just in their second store. Every time I'm like, OK, maybe this is a building that's 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 barrier free and stuff like yeah. that. And yeah, I'm, the closer relationships I have with these owners, the more I'm sort of encouraging them, like, can you look for a building like that or you yeah. know that sort of thing i mean it does speak to the larger problem of like the aging building stock in toronto and yeah you, it does you can't you have to be able you can buy what you what's available right so so there is that there but. is that um but i think that there's definitely more awareness and the awareness is where it starts mm-hmm. so you know even like people having those um like the wooden ramps all over the city like those stopgap ramps yeah, yeah the stopgap ramps they're everywhere and you know something as simple as that like this very visual reminder of like this is the expectation now mm-hmm. um when i was in ottawa when i was going through school we had an amazing um accessibility office and they were on us every event every time being like what is the accessibility? Where are the washrooms? Is there a step? How big is the step? Are we going to have like, like sign language interpreters? Like, you know, is it going to be bilingual? Like all of these things that were drilled into me as a 20 year old. Yeah. Universities are always so hardcore about every issue, but it's good. But it was so good because like, I'm here 10 years later and every event I'm, every time we go and check out a space, I'm like, okay, like, where are the steps? Like, what's going on here? Like, is there, you know, is there room to maneuver? Like, it's built into, like, the considerations that we have where it's like, oh, like, did we fill out, like, the accessibility? Like, it's like that kind of thing where it's like the assumption that was placed on me when I was 20 is that, 
that would be a consider something that I would consider. And I think universities have to be hardcore about this stuff because they're educational spaces. So, mm-hmm. the, the, and for many people, it's the first time you're learning yeah. about those issues. So you might as well know what the highest level of expectation is if you're going to then go out in the world and and experience it. Yeah, exactly. Like I remember when I was growing up, my my first like early experience with that. Uh, this girl actually went on to be my uh, my critical reader for the third book where I got into some pretty deep like disability stuff. And so I had her read it over and just give me her thoughts on it, just to be make sure that it was it was okay and that it wasn't going to like, you know, like not that it won't necessarily offend anyone, but that, you know, I really cared about her opinion on it. Uh, right. Brooklyn Marks. Okay. When we were in elementary school, uh, they had to they had to get an accessible bus because this uh, this young girl who we knew, she's not young anymore, but she was at the time, she used a, a wheelchair, an electric wheelchair, which a lot of kids hadn't seen before. And we'd never had to, we'd never needed to have an accessible bus before. It was fascinating to watch children like adapt to that experience of riding this accessible bus and the extra few minutes that it took to load um brooklyn's wheelchair into the back of the bus and everyone would kind of crowd around and be like you know it was like it was like a fun thing yeah it was like an event it was an event and (laughs) and i'm and 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 i'm glad and i'm glad that it didn't make her feel uncomfortable and eventually it just became so normal that you didn't really think about it anymore but our school like accommodated her need Mm -hmm. and and it's these things like stopgap ramps the bus mm-hmm. it all comes down to an individual like there's one individual behind those stopgap ramps and i mean in what you guys are doing it's it's many individuals but you're still in the single digits as a as a committee right yeah so i mean it's pretty awesome like that this is but happening. even though we're in the single digits as a committee like really it's about the community like we always right. joke about how like we're we're all of us like all four of us always are like Oh, I feel like I'm not contributing enough because these events are so they they run themselves because of the community right. and because of the 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 women who come out to the events. Like they're the ones that create that make them such a success mm-hmm. and the rest of us are just like picking out comic shops and making sure there's <laughs> enough food. If you're on the committee or if you're somebody that wants to join the committee, uh is there a process for like elections or a rotation of like who can be involved in the organization yeah not so much um really it's just about like reaching out to alice and the other organizers like it'd be really funny if like we ended up having like a super large committee but like there's there really isn't enough work to go around (laughs) as it is right but usually like if there's people who are interested they can reach out to us and like right now we're kind of exploring options for having some of those like outside social events. Like if people want to get together and watch a movie or go bowling or something like that, like if there's interest there, like the four of us are pretty busy. Like we all have creative endeavors outside of comic shop ladies night. Mm -hmm. So if there is interest there, then like we're more than willing to like hand the reins off. And as long as, you know, they're meeting those expectations of like having it be inclusive, then like absolutely they could totally run off and yeah expand it yeah like we're more than willing to to expand it 
Cool. So how often do these nights happen? And if people want to uh, attend them, if, if ladies out there want to attend them, like, uh, how can they follow where the next one's going to be? Yeah, so we usually try to hold them quarterly, so at least for a year. And you can find us at Comic Shop Ladies Night on Facebook. And there's also a mailing list that you can subscribe to. Uh, there's a link on there. And uh, yeah, we send out like regular updates with the upcoming events. And usually uh, our page is filled with um, different projects and, and things that that our community is actually involved in. So uh, Carol Zero just came out with Alien Toilet Monsters, you know, <laughs> and awesome. she's a regular at Comic Shop Ladies Night. Or you'll have Megan Carter with The God Slave and, you know, all the different comics. What has the reaction been from the men in the community to comic shop ladies night uh they want to come <laughs> <laughs> you know you're doing a good job when um I'll, honestly like one of the the most honest reactions i had was like explaining what it was to someone and having them be like damn i wish we had that <laughs> and i told them that they should that they could that they could make it themselves that you know get three friends make a committee right have like comic shop dude night or something. <laughs> i mean like to some could. degree like comic shop dude night is every night but like the idea of like creating a community around it of hosting those events where it feels comfortable to talk to people and engage with people and interact with people and get recommendations like there is nothing stopping um male comic fans from creating that we yeah. just we we're busy we're I, I organizing think, our thing i think if they called it comic shop dude night though i think i think that would look like appropriation from the outside looking in yeah you know? maybe i mean like they <laughs> probably don't need a to little call bit that. sketchy and dangerous in terms of reclaiming uh, yeah like <laughs> a certain a certain night you know i don't know it's i weird. think that there's a way to do it where um the idea of creating like an inclusive environment though, because there are like a lot of male fans who don't feel, you know, necessarily comfortable going and, and, and talking to people in those spaces yeah, and connecting not, with, like a lot of guys do want those connections with other fans. Yeah. They, or they're, they're just not happy with the way that the, the fandom has developed organically where mm -hmm. they are and they're not into what the community is into and they, they yeah. want something separate. Yeah, and I think that there's definitely an opportunity for, you know, those kinds of fans to band together and create something better. Like, mm -hmm. I, I, yeah, I, like, I appreciate your optimism. I, I think, I think they should. And, and, and at least these events like Comic Shop Ladies Night are like starting those discussions and people are talking about it and things like that. Yeah, so. like, guys have talked to us about like the pressures that they feel to that same pressures of like having to know everything and, you know, like memorize the encyclopedia entries on all of their favorite series just in case they get asked that question. Like, right. What, what's insane to me is some of them actually do it. Yeah. Just to, just to feel prepared yeah. to go out. Like I go to a lot, of a lot of Doctor Who events and I am all for people enjoying their their like their fan cultures in whatever way they choose but if one more person comes up and asks me you know like oh well do you know about like the missing episode x from like old doctor who blah 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 i'm like i don't care yeah <laughs> like straight up i i could not care less totally. like give me give me my matt smith and let me be yeah i think too though there's there's this level of like when you 
when you find a girl that's sort of into geek things mm-hmm. and and for a lot of these guys that you know they they were already sort of ostracized yeah. in their own community and that sort of thing it, it's so exciting when when a girl is also into this sort of thing that like i think sometimes it, it they're trying to impress you guys and and it, it it sort of crosses over into that possible dating realm i like legit dated a guy just because he had doctor who tattoos right, once right. yeah because i was so excited to find like i grew up in a very small town like you want to talk about social ostracization <laughs> yeah. i was a nerdy bookworm from a village of 500 people like I was like basically Belle from Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, so I think I think a lot of the testing they would see maybe as flirting or at least trying to relate. Yeah, so maybe at the comic book dude night they can teach appropriate flirting mechanisms. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or something. Yeah, like, that. like how to flirt one on one. Totally, totally. <laughs> Anyway, there's so much to talk about in, in this uh, this realm, and, and I, I'd love to have you back. But I want people to go out and experience, you know, Comic Shop Ladies Night now and, and, and in the future. I also kind of want people to follow you. So where can they find you online? Uh, you can find me on Facebook. I have a page, uh, Rebecca DM. Or you can go to RebeccaDM.com. Um, I have a mailing list. Or on like Twitter and Instagram, I'm at KThanksBex. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming in. And uh, we'll see you next time on Speech Bubble. This has been Speech Bubble. See you in the future, friends. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Harry Tarantula at 6979 Young Street. They sell comics and games to bright and imaginative people like you. So go there for your comics fix and go there for their games nights that happen all week. Check HarryT.com for the schedule and tell them Aaron sent you.